across the world today, here in Australia and far countries, China, uh, North Korea, sisters and brothers in Christ will confess, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. The great uh, defining mark of the work of the Holy Spirit is that he is life-giving, animating, empowering, vitalizing. Where the Spirit is, there is freedom, says the Apostle Paul. Freedom and joy and hope and energy. Christianity is not a philosophical religion. It's not a, a theory about what life is and how life is to be lived. In part because it's about facts, not theories. The, the facts of the history in the death and resurrection of Jesus rather than just theories or speculations. But Christianity is not a philosophical religion for another equally profound reason. Because God is with us. God is in us. God is present to us. Not, not far off, not distant, not first an object of our thought. But rather we, the objects of his dwelling. We are his and he's ours. Because of the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of our life. In the first week of this series, uh, three weeks ago, uh, we saw that the reason that the Holy Spirit is the Lord, the giver of life, is that he is one with the Father and the Son. He is, if you like, the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. He's the life of the divine being. And so also the giver of life beyond the eternal trinity in the creation. And his mode of that giving is always self-effacing. He always points to the Son, to the glory of God the Father. And then second, we looked at the reality of the power of the Spirit in me, in each of us me's, forming his life within each one of us, making holy like he is, making us holy like he is holy. Because he's the Spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit, which is the same thing as saying making us holy like the Father and the Son are holy because the Spirit and the Father and the Son are one. Last week we moved ahead to look at the presence and power of the work of the Spirit in we as well as in me, in us together as well as in us singularly because it belongs to the Spirit to do one of the great spiritual works that can ever take place which is to bring about and sustain the communion of saints, the, the unity in enormous and beautiful diversity of God's people. And today we finish the series by stepping back a little, looking at the Holy Spirit in the world, how he's active and gracious and powerful and what he empowers us to be and to do in that. And we're going to look at it under three headings. The first is the Spirit as the glow of the coming dawn and then his work of particular grace and then his work of common grace. So first in the, the glow of the coming dawn. To, to start with something obvious, and, and, and maybe this has been said before, but it's worth just noting again, the idea of the Holy Spirit is not something that the New Testament authors or even Jesus made up. Right? The, the Holy Spirit doesn't start in the New Testament. He's right there in the Old Testament as well. And, and it's true to say that the power and presence of the Spirit under the Old Covenant is deployed differently. And the, the point is that the pouring out of the Spirit is one of the fundamental ways that the Old Testament describes what it's going to be like when the great age to come is ushered in. When 
God fixes up everything and makes everything new. That's the time of the Spirit. And so the promise of the prophet Ezekiel is that a new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove from your body the heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh, not a cold, dead heart, but a live, beating heart for God. I'll put my spirit within you and make you follow my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. The prophet Joel uh, speaks this word of God. Then afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves in those days, I will pour out my spirit. I'll show portents, um, great mysterious signs. In the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Uh, I could read out many, many verses like this. And, and, And the point is that the Spirit is the glorious mark of God's great future. When joy and peace and blessedness are unleashed in this world, when everything that is wrong is put to right, when everything good is normal, when the, when the streets are paved with gold and the gates are made of pearls, evocative imagery to say that the most expensive things now are just the most ordinary things then. But, but you know, cows poo on and that sort of thing, gold. Because everything then is extraordinary. And the point is that it's the Spirit, the Spirit of God who is the carrier, the, the bearer, the agent of this future which God has in his purpose. Which is why the New Testament has a kind of cluster of terms that used to describe the Spirit in, in, to pick up on this reality. God say, uh, Paul says, the Apostle Paul says that God has established us in Christ, quote, by putting his seal on us and giving us his Spirit in our hearts as a first installment. The idea of the first installment is like the deposit that you put on your house or apartment if you buy one. That first portion of what will one day be your total ownership. The seal marks the fact that this is a little part of the future in the present right now. A little part of the future that guarantees the rest of the future to come. Uh, Missionary Leslie Newbigin put it like this. He said, the spirit is not the lantern which a traveller in the dark carries in his hand. We we might say uh, torch. The Spirit is not the, the, the torch that you carry that, that points forward. No, he says, here's the glow on his face of the coming dawn. It's such a, a lovely image. The glow on the face of the coming dawn. Um, I'm often up quite early for reasons that amuse me. I used to be a real good non-morning person, but I've just I got to get up these days. And our apartment faces northeast straight towards the city. And so I've, uh, from my 13th floor height, begun to witness a new thing, the sunrise over the cityscape. It's fantastic. It kind of draws you into the day in, in light and beauty. The day is dawn, you see. The full bright light of the day is not here yet, Right? but in the grace and power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is coming. The future's begun. The gift of the presence 
and power of the Spirit is God's great down payment, his great deposit, his seal on us that we've been grabbed for that day. The Holy Spirit is the presence of God's future, the then of God's glory breaking into the now of this world. And, and what the Spirit does is that he brings moments, he brings signs, episodes, the warmth of the dawning of God's future, the glory of the age to come into this present age. That's why what the Spirit does is to make us holy in his love. That's what we looked at in the second sermon because holiness in love is the colour that the age to come will be painted. That's why the Spirit unifies us as the body of Christ in all our diversity. That's what we looked at in last week. Because the future will be the profound glory of all things united under the good and great Lordship of Jesus Christ. And, and so to, to finish off, we're going to look at the way the Spirit's at work in the world, dragging our present into God's future. And he does that in two ways, in what I'm going to call particular grace and then in special grace. So second then, the particular grace of the Spirit's work in the world. The, the Acts of the Apostles, uh, which uh, the first just beginning portion was read for us, uh, could really be labelled the Acts of the Holy Spirit because it's the great presence and empowering of the Spirit that makes Acts such a rollicking good ride. Uh, if you get a chance to read Acts, just go for a great fun ride uh, about what the Spirit does in the world. And, and the particular thing that the Spirit does is to continue the mission of Jesus in and through his people and specifically empowering us to be witnesses to Jesus to the ends of the earth so that they'll be saved, that they'll have a place in the age to come, they'll have a place in that time when righteousness is at home. You see it right there in Acts chapter 1. Uh, so when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you'll restore the kingdom to Israel? And he replied, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father set by his own authority. Don't, don't get speculating, that's all right. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What is it that the Spirit does to glorify Jesus in this world? He makes us witnesses to Christ. He empowers God's people to speak about and live for Jesus in a hostile world. We see that hostility in the Acts. We, we see it and experience it in our own time too, don't we? It seems harder and harder to be a witness to Jesus in 21st century Sydney. To, to be a Christian openly and honestly can bring real discomfort and conflict in a way that hasn't always been the case in our culture. Religious conviction of any kind, especially faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour, is less and less thought of as just sort of silly or quaint or a bit embarrassing. Right? That's how it was a couple of decades ago. More and more, it's actively opposed as an evil and dangerous thing. Uh, you see it all the time in uh, our media, and it's, it's bad enough when it just gets sort of rolled over you again and again, but it's when you experience firsthand that it actually begins to bite, doesn't it? Uh, this week I heard of uh, a member of our church who was uh, talking with a parent uh, from her kid's school and when the parent found out that my friend was a Christian, the first question, the first question that they asked was, so how did you vote in the same-sex plebiscite? 
It's not actually a question, is it? It's an attack. If the answer to that question, if you give an answer, don't ever give answers to that kind of question, right? Do what Jesus did and ask a question back. Okay, never answer that sort of question. That's just shooting yourself straight in the head, actually. That's always ask a question back. Um, which may be along the lines of, really? Of all the things of spiritual substance in life, meaning, purpose, death, prayer, hope, joy, of all the things you want to ask about, of all the things that come to mind to you as of first importance, that's it? Seriously? And the answer is yes, seriously. Because that's the kind of culture we live in now. Where you get attack questions like that. It's a culture of hostility towards Christian faith. And Christians are fair game, uh, and even, even to their friends. And in that kind of context, it's, it's easy and even understandable to want to just keep your head down, right? To just kind of get on with life and to not really speak up. And, and for most of us, I'm sure that's not because we're ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. It's not because we don't think people really actually do need Jesus. It's not because we don't believe that each person's most urgent, desperate need is to turn to Jesus and find forgiveness and receive grace. It's just that you stick your head above the parapet and that's a whole lot of grief comes your way. And so how do we face our fears and be faithful witnesses even in that sort of context? How does the mission and message of God's Son go out in a hostile world? And the answer is that's precisely what we see the Spirit doing. That's the work of the Spirit in us. To empower. That's what we see in Acts, which sketch out the first few decades of the mission of Jesus' followers after his ascension. And the Spirit directs that mission. You read on in Acts. And you see that very early on, and in a more brutal and violent way in that day than in ours, the apostles meet with fierce opposition and hostility. Peter and John are preaching about Jesus publicly. They heal a man in Jesus' name in chapter 3. They're summoned before the religious authorities of the day and Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, we read, proclaims boldly that Jesus died and was raised and is God's King and Lord. You see what in Acts 3 and 4, they do exactly what was promised would happen by Jesus in Acts chapter 1. The authorities ordered them to stop speaking about Jesus and threaten them. The apostles say, look, thanks for the advice, but um, we'll just keep doing what we've got to do. You've got to do what you've got to do. We've got to do what we've got to do. And then they get together and pray. They pray in response to these threats of violence, fierce physical opposition. And in their prayer, they... they they find a way to kind of biblically frame what it is that's happening to them. They don't just look at the immediacy of their own experience. They frame it biblically. They note that the authorities are against them, Gentile and Jewish alike, just like God said they would be in Psalm 2. And it's so interesting. What they don't ask for is protection. Fascinating. What they don't ask for is for the hostility against them to cease. Although protection and an end to hostility would both be fair enough things to pray for, but they don't pray for those things. 
Instead, what they pray for is that God will make them faithful witnesses even in the face of hostility. What they pray for is boldness. That's a, that's a great moment, isn't it? When, when you know, there's physical threat upon you and, and the thing that comes out of your mouth, which is actually the thing that comes out of your heart, in response to that moment will tell you a very great deal about you, actually. And what they pray for is for boldness to be and to do that which God has given his spirit to them, to empower them to be and to do. And God answers their prayer. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. And so people come to faith. By the end of the first sort of section of Acts, possibly even up to 10% of the whole of Jerusalem, 10,000 people have come to faith in Jesus Christ. The Spirit has worked. It's empowered the people of Jesus. They bear witness to him. And people put their trust in Jesus. That's what the Spirit does. He causes us to grow in Christ-like holiness. He causes us to be bound together in a diverse but unified community around Jesus. And he works in us to embolden our witness to the Lord. So that people put their faith in Jesus and have a share in the glory that is to come. That's the particular grace of the Spirit's work in the world. But there's one more thing that we need to see briefly, which is the common grace of the Spirit's work. And we can get at this by asking a question which I think lurks in the back of our minds and which needs to be kind of brought out into the light and had a good, hard look at. And the question is this. Why is it that there are people who are not Christian who are often far better, far kinder, far more loving and generous and joyful and thoughtful than people who are Christian. How does that work? How can that be? And actually, this, this series on the Holy Spirit, of course, just makes the question sharper and pointier, doesn't it? Right? Since we Christians, we've been learning, are indwelt by nothing other than, nothing less than the power and presence of God, the Spirit. Doesn't matter how bad a Christian you are, you have the Holy Spirit in you. How can it be? I remember a young Christian describing her first workplace experience after university and saying that the most challenging thing to her was not the hostility of people around her to Christ, although there was plenty of that. The most challenging thing to her was the excellence of her boss. This was a very rare, perhaps only once in the history of work in the last 20 years this was the case, but there you go. The excellence of her boss, it messed with her head. She couldn't escape the thought which lurks behind this question, right? What difference does God make anyway. And it's that issue that the truth of the common grace of the Spirit's work in the world speaks to. You see, it would be a terrible mistake to think that the only place 
that the power and presence of the Spirit was at work was in Christians. So that's been the focus of what we've looked at over the last few weeks. It would be a terrible mistake uh, to think that the world was divided into those bits and people where God was at work by His Spirit and then those bits and people He wasn't at work at all. He'd abandoned to and just left them alone. That, that kind of view, that's called dualism, sort of yin and yang, the black and the white. And the point is, it's absolutely not Christian. No, no, our conviction is that the whole world belongs to God. The whole world. He made it, he sustains it, he will redeem it in a great cleansing where everything that hurts and damages and destroys where everything that is contrary to him and his grace will be swept away and cleansed. In other words, God is at work in all the world, in every place and in every person by his Spirit. And as soon as you say that, you've got to hold in place two things at the same time. On the one hand, of course it is the Spirit who works in the world, in all places and in all people. Jesus said, God makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends the rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. It's not as though the normal course of a day with sunrise and sunset with rain and dry are apart from God working by his spirit in this world. God upholds the universe by his word of power. It doesn't just go on from day to day and year to year under its own steam. And it's the Holy Spirit who gives people abilities and capacities with all the ingenuity that means that there are engineers and plumbers and doctors and truck drivers and mothers and fathers with children. Of course, these are all, wherever they happen in the world, all the gifts and power and presence of the Spirit. And and similarly, lots of people are honest and kind and uphold the good to some extent and oppose the evil to some extent, including excellent bosses. And that too, the fact that the world is not by a long shot as bad and depraved as it could be, that too is the work of the Spirit. So you see, far from eroding confidence in God, the fact that we find some marks of goodness in the world actually serves to deepen and strengthen our confidence in God. He's the good God who's the Lord of all the world and he works in all of it. So that's on the one hand. At the same time, on the other hand, it's crucial to see that this is God's common grace. Common in the sense that it's everywhere in everyone. Common in the sense also that it's not particular. That is, it's not saving. It's about glimpses of the future that God works in the present in all aspects of the world, but it's not the same thing. It mustn't be confused with. It's not the same thing as being born again, as putting your faith in Jesus, as confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord and Saviour. Because the Spirit does both of these works, His works of common grace as well as His works of particular grace, And actually, you can see how they're linked. See, it's the very fact that God is at work by His Spirit in the world, in people who are indifferent or even hostile to Christ, at work in them and through them 
maybe even despite that, that means we can go into the world filled with the Spirit as witnesses to Jesus Christ with confidence because the Spirit is already there. He is already present and active. He is already working his common ground. And so our prayer is that he will take and use our boldness and work his special and particular grace in the lives of those to whom we bear witness to Christ. Because the Holy Spirit is the Lord. He's the giver of life. He's the giver of our life. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you've, in the great grace of your own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, have poured out your Spirit upon us. And we pray that in our own circumstances, in our own families and neighbourhoods, amongst the friends and colleagues and acquaintances that we have in the ordinary business of life, that you would embolden us by your Spirit at work in us with all wisdom to bear faithful witness to Christ. We praise you that you are by your Spirit at work commonly in the world too. That you restrain evil. That you strengthen good. We praise you that you're already there before us. And ask that you'll continue to use us for your grace and purposes. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.